0: Welcome to Shanghai Zhan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts. And you can learn more about Shanghai Zhan at our website, JohnStation.com. Coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai, I'm Bryce Witwan. And I'm Ali Kazmi. And we'd like to thank all of you for our continued support. And if you like the show, share it with your friends. Or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Making the podcast is pure love, and we don't make any money. So if you'd like to help us, you can make a small donation at patreon.com. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash John. And if you do, you get a coffee mug or a cool sticker. Ali, today we're talking about the evolution of the Chinese automobile business. China has become a booming EV market, expecting to hit 5.5 million units this year, a market share of 15% of the total market. And it's more than just a lot of Teslas or Nios, but a market that has become more riders than drivers. How will the automobile experience become a utility, and what is the future of the traditional automobile industry? Are brands still relevant? Today we're talking with Bill Russo. He's been in China for the past 18 years and is the founder and CEO of Automobility, a strategy and investment advisory firm that helps its clients build and profit from the future of mobility. Bill first came to China as the head of Chrysler Northeast Asia. Bill, welcome to Shanghai Zan. Thanks so much, Bryce and Ali. Good to be here. So, Bill, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you today and what's your relationship with China? You know, you've lived in China for about 18 years. Why would you study cars in the automobile industry for so long?
1: I'd say given the historical importance of mobility innovation, you know, being a part of the uh, developments in China over the past 18 years now, you're kind of standing in the front row witnessing history and, and having an opportunity to shape directionally where it's going, Uh, you know, I do think China has evolved rapidly from a market that was following the rest of the world in terms of innovation. And it's now the tip of the spear on the future of mobility and innovations associated with that both because it's the world's largest market. But because of that, it's a magnet for global innovation to scale uh, in markets like China in my thinking, you know, it's a much more progressive market. It's it's a market that doesn't have a long history, and therefore, a, I'd say a bias or a, for carryover solutions, right? We don't have a need to kind of hold on to the past, because most of what we're seeing happening in China happened within this generation, right, within the recent past. And therefore, it's a much more progressive attitude toward the future. So my journey to China came through Detroit. I mean, I'm I'm not from Detroit. I spent 17 years there working in the automotive industry, both as a consultant initially, and then uh, working for an OEM. It was Chrysler uh, and Daimler Chrysler. It was was at the time that initially brought me to China. But uh, by being there, I kind of felt like you were being in the, again, witnessing from the front row, the creation of a whole new way of thinking about
0: the industry. And tell us about your company, Automobility. What problem does your company exist to solve? First of all,
1: we're going through a period of accelerated uh,
0: transformation,
1: technological transformation, and business model innovation. In a place like China, again, large mobility demand, right? You've got a population of 1.4 billion people, all of whom move, not all of whom own a vehicle. Everybody has a mobility problem. Everybody is a mobility user whether they own a vehicle or not. You are always requiring mobility. Mobility is something you will either pay to own or pay to use and often invoke in forms that, you know, if you order something and a package is delivered to you or food is delivered to you, mobility is involved. So when you're viewing it that way, everybody's a mobility customer. What's unique about China is you don't have this multi-generational habit Uh, vehicle ownership, passenger car ownership. You have far more people who ride than drive. So the way the mobility problem is solved is often with a more diverse set of solutions. And many of those solutions are being invented by internet services, internet solution, digital ecosystem companies to capture that transactional frequent everyday demand. So that's what is I think pretty special about China is you've got this very large digital economy investing in mobility, creating new ways of attacking the inefficiencies and the inconveniences of people who historically have been dealing with a less than democratized way to access services, right? If everybody has a mobility need, and now with the smartphone, we have a mechanism with apps to access things that were difficult to get before, then you have a whole new way of experiencing the world. And and that's what's happening is you've got that high demand for mobility, a high need for services associated with it, combined with the world's largest digital
0: economy that is actively investing in creating new solutions to make lives more convenient. And how would you break down connected mobility from an automobile perspective. Is it like a customer journey where people go from one moment to the other? Uh, You mentioned that it's become a very technology play where there's a lot of technology, there's mobility within people's smartphones and the whole advent of that. But could you break it down in terms of how connected mobility exists within the automobile perspective besides just taking us from point a to point b
1: you have to look at it through the lens of, of the consumer population first i think again mobility exists in both people movement meet us moving and things moving to us that's goods movement goods and services our mobility needs are now served with a diverse set of solutions beyond simply owning and operating equipment ourselves to actuate the mobility, right? We don't have to always go to the store to pick up the things. We can order it online. We don't always have to go to the restaurant or go to the supermarket. We can have the food delivered to us. So we've made mobility dispensed through the app economy available to a large population of people who are all armed uh, virtually everyone in China armed with a smartphone. The internet economy in China grew up later than the way the internet appeared. If you kind of you know draw the the, the sort of the convergence between the automotive industry, which for a long period of history has been an analog device driven by a, a human driver, to now the internet economy that sees the mobility sector and its ability to serve that as part of its business model. The automotive industry does not see the internet as part of, or the the internet economy or the digital economy as part of its business model. Part of the liability it has is it doesn't know how to profit from the vehicle other than when it sells the car, right? Think about that. If you're the hardware company and your business is serving the utility of mobility. If your business is to provide a product that serves a mobility utility, none of that business is inside of the scope of your business model. In fact, you even call yourself original equipment manufacturer. You've drawn a line around your business that says, I don't do the service part other than fixing it when it breaks. This is part of the, the problem that the legacy auto industry has is it's kind of geofenced itself away from where the profit can be made in the services associated with the vehicle after it's sold. So to to say that your vehicle is smart because it has apps and you can connect yourself to the internet through the car is kind of, you know, adding a feature without really capturing the revenue associated with the the services that go along with mobility. So the reason why I called my company Automobility is really a poke in the eye at an industry that calls itself, it marginalizes itself by what it defines its business to be, which is original equipment manufacturer. Of what? An automobile. So by saying you're an automobile company, by saying you're an automotive company, you've relegated yourself to being a supplier of the hardware when in fact you should be thinking about the productivity of the utility of the hardware, which is primarily mobility, but not just right. Its mobility is its primary purpose. The, mobi- the, the if you make a bike, a car, an airplane, its primary purpose is mobility. But you can profit from more than just the sale of the hardware. You can profit from the movement, from the a- from the actual movement itself, the service of, of of how to dispense that mobility to the population. You can profit from the connectivity that that device provides to its users you can stream you can aggregate data you can do big data analytics you can monetize the people that do what use the car right that's what the internet does when we use a computer right it's profiting from the digital exhaust that we all create when we move around between the various websites or when we click on various sites you can monetize data associated with human mobility Whether we're moving or whether things are moving to us, all of that is mineable as a mobility services company, as a mobility solutions company. And the third part, which is important, is there's the utility of the energy that's being consumed by and being traded with the device itself. As the car becomes an electric-powered machine, you can trade the energy. You can buy it when it's cheap. You can sell it back to the grid when it's peak demand. Cars can be viewed as energy storage devices. So I think this is the convergence of of automotive, internet, and energy that's really creating an exciting opportunity for profits in the new economy. Bill, can you, besides
0: the transfer of passengers from one place to the other through shared apps like Didi, are there other types of Revenue generating opportunities currently available in China that you're seeing in the context of how the newer EV brands are profiting from existing legacy type of automobiles and moving into a different economy? Are there current models in place besides shared riding services that you can give us as examples?
1: Oh, definitely. Writing services or any services that involve movement. It's not just us moving. It's things moving to us. The whole business of the Internet is moving of the e-commerce business or the app economy is either moving data or moving things to us. We are all users of smart devices. We consume things. And when we consume things, a big chunk of the revenue comes from, from the movement of the goods or the services to and from us right? Either us moving to it or moving to us. You, if you're an internet company, that's your cost. It's embedded in your cost structure. If you have to pay for a package to be delivered to a third party, then you want to reduce that cost, right? You want to eliminate the fuel maintenance, the three costs, the main costs, the main cost elements of mobility are how much energy does it consume in getting it to us, right? That's the fuel cost, the second is the how much does it cost to keep the vehicle moving, right? How do you avoid downtime? How do you reduce the increase the productivity asset and service, right? This is, these are problems I think technology companies know how to solve. Obviously, there's the driver cost. If somebody has to physically get behind the steering wheel and move it, then you've got to pay that person. You may not pay them a lot, but you still got to pay them, DD, Uber doesn't matter who the service is, that driver is a cost. And that driver has to go home at night, which means that that car that he's driving is not going to be productive while that person's sleeping. So when you think about innovation and the future of mobility, it's about mitigating all of that, right? You eliminate fuel costs, reduce maintenance costs. How? By turning the car from a mechanical device into more of an electronic device. It's always going to be somewhat mechanical because it's got to move. So you're not going to completely eliminate the mechanical engineering part, but you can turn it into a more automated, more mechatronic, uh, me- mechanical and electronic device. Um, and ultimately, you want it to be able to self-drive. You want to train it to learn to think and, and, and actuate itself. Uh, you might do that with geofencing. You might do that with a simplified you know, back-and-forth movement, uh, replacing those types of devices. But you're going you're to invest in those technologies that are about improving the productivity of the assets and service. So that's what the Internet economy is trying to do. And in the process of serving us, even with the driver-based legacy solutions, they're gathering a tremendous amount of information about us uh, and what we consume and, and how we you know go about our lives. If you have the intel on where a person lives, works, plays, what they shop, what they like to eat, you pretty much know how to, sell anything to that person and that is what the business of the digital ecosystems is all about it's about profiting from the big data associated with our mobility pattern uh, our digital pattern and our mobility pattern and the two are converged now
0: in the future of mobility i guess that's why there's so many of the tech companies now are getting into mobility services and like xiaomi and and definitely we're hearing about huawei Uh, they were prominent at the last auto show Apple is rumored to launch an Apple car anytime soon. It's, it's the biggest
1: supercomputer that interacts with humans on an everyday basis, right? The, the mobility device, stop calling it a car, because that has a legacy view, right? We think of car, we think of something shaped and looking like, you know, the thing that we've had attached to us for our entire lives. We even in our homes, <laughs> who, who, who lives in the largest room in your house, which is your garage, Nobody, your car does, or your car, your car collection does if you have a two- or three-car garage. The largest space under the roof in your home in the United States is housing your vehicle. That's how important it is to our lifestyle, is we allocate the largest space under our roof to it. That's kind of, you know, puts it in perspective. There is no parallel for that in China. And, you, know, you know, the Chinese word for home is jia. And in under that roof, somebody told me this once, is a, is a shape. The character has a little pictogram under it of a pig, right? If you took the the roof off the top of the Chinese character, underneath it is a pig, right? That was viewed to be a rich person. When they created the word home, Is a pig under the roof. If you have a pig under your roof, you can feed your family. If you drew a, a westernized version of the Chinese character for home, You'd put a roof over a car, right? That's how central it is to our definition of our lifestyle. What the digital economy is doing is it's challenging that mobility is central to our lifestyle, but owning a car, does it, is it really required if you have access to mobility on demand? You know, you still want to move around, but do you need to own the hardware? Do you need to be the actuator of the equipment? That's what the internet is really challenging the internet economy is challenging that paradigm
2: we've talked about efficiencies we've talked about um, mobility and cars and looking at cars as devices as opposed to a a four-wheeled i guess car (laughs) i can't call it call it any 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 different i'm just
1: (laughs) an object of possession versus an object of service there you go right that's it's a fundamental difference and how the industry, the industry is selling the lifestyle associated with ownership, and it does that very well i mean I, I was in it you selling the mythology of of how what a car does to you to f- give you the freedom of mobility what the internet 's doing is it 's challenging what the internet economy is doing, what the mobility as a service economy is, do, does is it challenges. That paradigm by the way, these companies, you, you, you talked of examples like Apple and, and, and Xiaomi and others who are Huawei or who are stepping in, well, they're stepping in because they see it as a business that they can profit from, right? It's a frequent everyday transactional relationship. And if making hardware allows you to optimize the way in which you can dispense that digital service or solution. By the way, that doesn't mean that all these companies don't want to sell you a piece of hardware. Apple is selling you a lot of hardware, right? I'm surrounded by Apple stuff. We all like the experience of whatever products we like to buy. So they're not saying that they don't want you to own a piece of hardware. They just want to make sure that that piece of hardware has multi-dimensional revenue has smartness when what does smartness mean it means it. it has multi-dimensional revenue and profit generation characteristic and you only get to enjoy that if you're part of the services relationship with the customer after you've sold them the equipment that requires smart connected you, you use the word connectivity or connected mobility can you need to have intelligence built into the hardware you need smartness in the hardware that's chips that's sensors, that's data gathering technology, that's HMI, and you also need software and apps, right? Operating system software that allows the the apps to talk to the hardware, and you need app-based services on top, some of which you might create yourself, some of which you might have third parties create to your standard. So this is the world of the future, that if you know, you're in the hardware-only business, you can still profit from that. It's not going to go away. There's still going to be equipment out there. But you also want to have the ability to profit from the daily transactional business you can do with the end users of the vehicle.
2: And and do you think that's something that Western car brands are succeeding at in this market? Or what do you think is holding them behind?
1: No, absolutely not. Yeah, first of all, Western car brands have enjoyed for decades deeply entrenched advantages over the Chinese automakers, it's a it's a young industry. First sino foreign JVs appeared in the 1980s. Initially, Volkswagen and American Motors, eventually acquired by Chrysler, uh, that made Jeep uh, in its early days. You know, later on, others joined. But even by the turn of the millennium, the market was about a million units of annual sales, mostly commercial vehicles, about a million. Today, it's it's a it peaked at 28.9 million units. In 2017 you know went from a million units to 28.9 you don't see 27 million units of annual sales growth in you know in the total industry China represents about 30 percent of the global sales uh, in the world right that wasn't true a generation ago it was a third world country in terms of automotive sales in the year 2000 Uh, that's all changed if you were to sum up the total sales over that period of time you know, foreign companies probably sold 70% of all the vehicles ever sold in China and still today sell two thirds, about 60% of the vehicles sold in China. But as the, wor- as the world pivots to EVs, as the world pivots to digital and services, that's not foreign dominated, that's locally dominated. The, the digital economy in China is a local, very local digital economy, and foreign companies don't participate in it. Right. There really is very few outside of maybe Apple with its app store and its uh, smart device services. There aren't that many foreign companies that are in the app economy profiting from doing business in China. And if you now put the car into the smart device category and ask, you know, what foreign companies are in that business of selling, you know, smart devices that are monetized in, in service, I'd say virtually nobody's doing that today. If, and even if they're trying to do it, they're doing it by selling it as a feature, not selling it as a smart device. When I say smart device, where they're actually profiting from the services to the users that have purchased the vehicle. Nobody knows. It's not in the scope of their business model to do that. It's not. They, they sell the car. The, the only services they'll ever do for the users of that vehicle is to change the oil, replace the tires, replace the brakes... It's vehicle services, it's not digital services. Right? Very, very few foreign companies know how to play that game. They, they don't play it in China, and by the way, they don't play it anywhere else either. Right? Nobody's really seeing it. It's like a dark part of the room because why? There are they, because they're automotive companies, not automobility companies. They're not looking at that business as a w- in a way that says, I know how to profit from it. It's not that there aren't profits embedded in it. It's just they just that they don't know how to do it. It's just not in the scope of their business. Their scope of their business is to optimize the utilization of one thing, and that's the factories that they own, right? They have to maximize the productive use of the factory space. It's not maximize the productive use of the cars that come out of that factory, In fact, most cars that are built by traditional OEMs have about a 5% productivity in terms of utilization. A person who buys a car uses it, on average, one hour a day, on average. That's about 5% of its productivity. Or less three to five percent of its time is actually spent moving most of its time is spent in a garage
2: yeah no i was on uh huai hailu yesterday and uh at, the, at an intersection and i was just counting out the number of cars that were essentially just being driven by the driver and there was no no passenger in them and, and i think it was around uh, uh on average there were about five cars with just that one single driver And the odd car that did have someone was a DD driver with a passenger at the back. So it's very inefficient. Exactly.
1: So the DD car probably gets 8 to 10 hours of use and has more than one person in a car. An individually owned car gets one hour of use on average and has one person in the car most of the time. Right. The only time that you have other people in the car, if it's the one you own, is if you're driving to the restaurant with your family or the shopping mall or you're taking a weekend trip. That's when you're gonna get the most productivity of that car. Think about it, if you were to invent a a business and sell it to shareholders and say, I'm gonna build build a factory, use it for one hour a day, it's gonna be down the rest of the time, would you invest in that company? But basically that's what the automotive industry is convincing customers to do, is to buy a car that they only need for an hour on average a day. Uh, and by the way, they're not just buying the car. I, I try to do the math with my wife, who told, was encouraging me to buy a car recently. When I was in the U.S. paying for a rental, it was—you know—the the rental fees are pretty high. Uh, but I don't—I don't own a car. I haven't owned a car in China in nine years because it was the wor- worst. <laughs> it's a terrible investment. But think about this: it goes down in value, right? You're going to use it an hour a day. It's going to depreciate. You got to buy insurance. You got to pay for to, to gas it up, and the and you got to pay to maintain it. And then you got to pay ninety thousand yuan for a license plate if you're in Shanghai. So think about think about the, the the gigantic money pit of owning a vehicle in China, right? That's and and yet you know twenty plus million people every year do it because they have been convinced that it's necessary. Now it, I'd say more people still ride than drive, but there are people, a growing number of people that do have a driver's license and like to have access to a car. It's, it's certainly, a, 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 it does provide you with a freedom of mobility that you know, apps alone can't come close to matching. But I think it's quite different in China where people's lifestyles don't depend on getting in a car to do everything. Right? You don't
0: really, it's a luxury really versus a necessity if you live in a city. I was at the last auto show. I believe the last one was in Shanghai and I could not believe the number of new EV brands that have sprouted up uh, over the last few years. There was one brand that even had a contest that they covered up all the logos on the car. And if you could guess the brand of the car, you won the car and nobody got it. (laughs) Nobody won it (laughs) because you could not tell. You couldn't tell what the car was. I mean, I'm assuming that there's going to be a lot of uh, consolidation. There are, there are brands all over the shop. There's brands at the luxury end as well as the very, very low end of EV cars. Assuming they're not going to survive, what brands do you think stand out? First, to
1: kind of pick up on why there are so many brands, uh, then I'll come to the question on, on you know which ones will will make it. The why is, is is clear that that if you boil away, you know it's been a relatively flat, if not slightly declining, market. You know if you look at the last few years, you know that twenty eight point nine peak year was twenty seventeen. We we haven't matched that in five years, right? We're gonna it's one two three four, five years now. We won't we won't match it in twenty twenty two at all. We, we're going to struggle to beat last year's number, even with a whole lot of incentives. Last year's number was 26.3 million units. And if I look at the sum of, of the market, at least through the first half of this year, you know the NEV, new energy vehicle category, grew by 120%, more than doubled, is up 1.4 million units in the first half of the year. And the internal combustion engine, the gasoline-powered vehicles, are down 19.4%. I said earlier, 60%, two-thirds of market, about 60-plus percent, of the vehicles sold in China, including NEVs, are sold by foreign-branded multinational car makers. However, the NEV segment, which has grown by 1.4 million units, 78% of those vehicles are locally branded. 78% of the vehicles sold, 78.5% to be precise, of the NEVs sold are Chinese-branded. So the race to the future of mobility powered by electric uh, propulsion system, China's winning. I've got to say, of the smart EV category, by the smart EVs I mean the companies with digital DNA, Neo, Xiaopeng, Li Auto are the premier brands in that category. They got 100% of that market because no foreign companies really making a car has conceived of a car as a digital uh, device other than the Chinese. The Chinese are alone in that category, and they're pricing for it, right? If you want to price higher a vehicle, you price for its connectivity tech, its digital tech. Who are the winners of that 78% uh, you know, share that, that is, is winning? Before we get to that, it, look at the historical trend of EV sales. EV sales struggled to get to 5% market share. And it kind of hovered there for a few years. 2018, 2019, 2020, we kind of got stuck at 5%. In 2020, something changed. A light switch went on. I would submit that it's it was the entry of Tesla into the China auto uh, market as a locally produced EV. What did that do? It, it set the market price-wise. It, it gave consumers a foreign brand to compare Chinese brands with and then you could begin to see and get your head around why you would pay a certain price for a Neo, a Li, a, a Xiaopeng, because you can do a straight comparison of the, of the sticker on what content you are getting for that price. Now, who are the winners? It's very clear. BYD is a head and shoulders, far and away winner in the EB category. Uh, BYD, in uh, just looking at the July numbers, BYD through the month of July uh, sold, in half-year numbers, 634,000 vehicles, electric vehicles, NEVs, new energy vehicles. The closest competitor to BYD was Wuling, who sold 208,000 vehicles, that was more than triple the number of the number two company. Right, Tesla at number three, 197,000. Now Tesla obviously had to deal with the lockdown, probably more so than any of these other companies, but still significantly fewer. So BYD, uh, if I look at just through the half year mark, six of the top 10 selling vehicles in China were BYD products. That's clear advantage. So you can go to the auto show and see many different companies and many different products. But the reality is only a few companies that are kind of standing out in the crowd. And that's, I would say, BYD is on that short list. Wuling, which is making a very cheap, very low-end vehicle, but very fun. It's, I call it very affordable vehicle. Cheap makes it sound like it's, it's chintzy. It's not. It's a, it's a you know, very aggressively priced 5000 dollar car that is selling very well in lower-tier regions of China. But there are other good companies rising up to the top. Geely. You know, GAC makes a Guangzhou Auto makes a car called the Aeon that's sold over 100,000 units through the first half of the year, and then some of these newer digitally infused companies like Li Auto and Neo are also up and comers.
2: This is um, perhaps a question that that we can talk about, but and it's to an earlier point that you were making, Bill, on that big service opportunity that conventional car automotive brands missed out on. Uh, especially on the service front one of the big things that we've noted especially with evs is that their storefronts are, are obviously very different and they place very different to some of the conventional combustion car brands and that's probably one of the reasons why people opt not to go to the 4s stores why they you know the conventional car brands have a distributor model as well and they look at themselves as you said you know as oem uh, car manufacturers so the entire service component has been outsourced to a series of, of companies that, that operate in the periphery of the OEMs. Do you think they're already inherently disadvantaged in this game? Uh, is there opportunity for BMW, Mercedes and Ford and all these other companies? or What do you think is going to happen next?
1: The franchise dealer business-based business model is another seam in the transactional relationship, right? Having a direct... Relationship Tesla didn't, they may have pioneered it for the automot- automakers, but it wasn't pioneered by them. I mean, people have had branded stores for a long time in consumer products industries. I, but I think when you move into the digital economy, really, you got to keep pointing back to Apple and the Apple store, right? You know, people didn't go there. They went there because it's a fun place to go experience technology. And I think that's a little bit of what some of these pioneering EV brands have, have brought. It's like, I, I want to go there because it's tech and tech is fun, right? I like shopping for it. I like dealing with the company directly. Why deal with an intermediary who's just there to profit from selling me something that I probably, you know, his business is tried to convince me to buy something I wouldn't otherwise buy. If you go to a Tesla store, if you go to an Apple store, you're going there because you want to buy something or you just want, you, you just think it's fun nobody goes to a car dealership because they think it's fun. It's
2: difficult to get the wife to go to a, a car dealership, but it's easy to get her to go to a Tesla store. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it very different. People go to auto shows because it's fun, right? It's, it's different, right? Because you're just dealing with the cars, right? The cars are the stars at the auto show. You're not dealing with the auto sales guy. I got to, you know, say that, that that's a huge disadvantage if, you know, again, I, I, dealers have a role in the traditional industry an important one. They are the, the face to, of the company to the customer. But why should a third party be the face to your customer? Even worse, if you're selling a smart device product, the reason why you want To sell a smart connected device is because you want that B2C relationship directly with the end user. Nobody in between you and them. That's a legacy that is going to be very, very hard for the traditional industry to overcome. It's kind of, you know, a subsidized intermediary that is in the business of owning the customer relationship. It's not to say they haven't, they've profited and the auto industry has profited for years by having that relationship. They can't sacrifice us completely but as as you move into this connected era, these companies who are starting and now competing with you for that customer are not copying that part of your business model. They're trying to you know they're trying to create a new way. And and you gotta figure out how to interpolate between yesterday and tomorrow. You can't carry all that legacy over and expect to win.
2: To write on something that you mentioned earlier on under the umbrella of automobility, shouldn't service therefore be delivered to the end customer. It's taking also the, the this thought around one of my uh, one of my cl- close friends is a is a Tesla three owner, and he's owned that vehicle for around three years, and he hasn't really taken it in for any kind of servicing. And in fact, because it's an EV, it doesn't need servicing. So, and and the only time ever he's had to uh, call on Tesla to service the car was when. Um, when it ran out of battery in his underground garage. Do you think that there won't be a role for Forester dealers in the future? You
1: need a hybrid model, You, you need to, you, but you need to have some kind of clear separation of roles, right? Role clarity is important. You still need dealers. I mean, the, the, those shopping mall experience centers, that's what they are. They're experience centers. You experience the brand, you deal with the customer directly, but you're not going to get your car service there. You still need the the service shop. you still need somebody who can do the work that traditional dealers do. I'm just not sure it's the primary point of sale right I'm just not sure that that's you't want to seed that. You certainly want to have the ongoing the the dealer preparation the the inventory management the servicing you know all of that's capital. Uh, brick and mortar investment and you don't need to have all that on your book. So some kind of a hybrid model that splits the role of who engages the customer in the device itself, the selling of the brand, who invests in the brand, that's the should be the car maker's role. Right? The automobility company's role should be to create the physical device and the features that then engage the customer in both the aspiration of the brand and how it serves their lifestyle, as well as the execution of the transactional relationship with that user in the ownership experience. That should be the car the automobility companies, not the automotive companies, it's the wrong name. Uh, the automobility companies should be thinking that way. And if there's an intermediary role for managing the inventory, managing the service, managing the the you know the physical asset Uh, associated with providing the service then by all means use the dealers for that but don't give them the primary role of being the the selling agent to the
0: to the end customer of your services. My son is an urban planning major at Rutgers in New Jersey and he described to me urban planning as a study of correcting previous urban planners' failures in infrastructure planning. <laughs> and if you think about knowing that you're from New York, you could probably cite a lot of examples of things where you went back home and think, what were they thinking when they built this? And in all of us, all three of us, have seen massive infrastructure changes since we came, first came to China. I always tell people that even Shanghai went from two subway lines to 18. Uh, since since I've been there. So do you see the infrastructure in China as mobility happens and there's more autonomous vehicles? Do we need massive parking lots and giant freeways? Do you see that China will lead in this way as well? What do you think that the infrastructure uh, of the future will be like to accommodate the, the future of mobility?
1: Well, I think there's probably a lot more thought given to that because China's not afraid to invest in infrastructure. I mean, you didn't have to convince being able to to kind of reimagine yourself is easier if you're not holding on to a legacy of what you were. You know, you, and your son's point is absolutely correct. You know, if I look at pictures of the US before the in the early part of the 20th century when cars were not pervasive, you didn't have, you know, the snarl of urban uh, you know, first of all, the urban sprawl that exists is because of the car, right? We moved, we, we created a machine that allowed us to move away from the cities and cities became mega, megaplexes, suburban to urban webs of highways. You know, you know ur- urban planning in a downtown area, you basically created the city for the commuter, for the distance commuter and built parking lots and roads in places where human beings should be doing business. Right you basically moved people away uh and therefore killed a lot of the urban you know downtown center markets right the market, you know europe has is, is got that legacy still right they've you know a lot of the smart city projects in places like that you know at least you have the core in because europe kind of- you know preserved its 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 history in in many of its cities and it and the car didn't overwhelm it in quite the way the US it did in the US where, where you basically turned cities into freeways. Uh, Los Angeles, Houston, Detroit. They don't even have mass transit in Detroit because it was designed by the automotive industry. It was designed for the automotive industry. Places that were markets turned into the Chrysler Freeway or the Ford Freeway. And the city became a donut. All right. Everything around everything was around the edge and, and nothing was in the center. They're trying to reverse some of that now, but it's hard. It's hard without, you know, urban Planning and mobility is at the center of urban planning because essentially all the city's services are enabled by some form of mobility. And if you don't have a mass transit uh, solution that works, that's not intrusive to the city, then you end up with cars invading like locusts. And what happens is you build freeways and parking lots uh, and that replaces businesses. I don't see that happening. You know, that's the reason why they invested in building out a metro system. It's it's below the the ground. It's not intrusive. You know, places like New York, you have elevated trains. They 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 were apparently weren't able to tunnel everywhere, so they built these other massive steel projects to put the trains in the air, so that they weren't that the people were moving above the ground, not uh, you know not on the surface where you'd rather have cars and buses. Right? I mean, that's the paradigm of the U.S. is, is uh, you know, repurpose space for cars, not repurposed space for people. Uh, so I think that's the challenge of 21st century urban planning, is how do you reduce the intrusiveness of motorized transportation on the
0: functioning of the city? The cars are more efficient, like you said, currently only used about 5% of the time would seem to that, that would help solve the issue.
1: If you can increase the productivity of vehicles in service, if you can increase the number of vehicles a uh, percentage of the total that are that are in service, then you reduce the number of vehicles, right? You serve PKM, passenger kilometers of movement or TKM, tonnages of goods movement, uh, if you if you can turn those vehicles into more productive machines, then you don't need as many of them to serve the demand.
0: Bill, this is a really fascinating industry, I think, and what you're doing now and talking about autos and and to mobility. Uh, We noticed on our podcast analytics that we get a lot of young listeners what would be your younger than us uh, that we're young but (laughs) younger than than us for people that are interested in being a part of the revolution i think that all of us came to china originally for that and what you're describing is right in effect the future of mobility in the world that's happening now in china which to me is like completely exciting yeah what would be your recommendation for people that want to get into the industry? Uh, how would they get started? What would be the first things that you would do? What would be your recommendation?
1: Well, great, great question. I, I actually t- told one of the senior U.S. Uh, State Department officials that uh, you know the problem the U.S. has. This is you know before the this is pro- before the current administration and, and sort of the the recent moves being made to prioritize you know, the electric vehicle and infrastructure investments, all of which I think are good late, but better late than never movements. Because what basically the U.S. had done is they ceded to China the the next generation of mobility innovation. They basically you know said that, you know, we, we don't believe in climate change, we don't believe in electric vehicles, consumers don't want to buy them anyway, we're not going to put any government investments in infrastructure or we're not going to subsidize to the level that China has because we don't believe it's good for our economy that's kind of the government it was a laissez-faire approach and with with that you get nothing with that you get nothing the only the only state in the United States that was even thinking about it progressively was California and that's why we have Tesla right if it was you know Tesla Elon Musk can complain about what the Biden administration is doing to subsidize but if he didn't get subsidized by the California state government for zero emission vehicles, he wouldn't have had the company that he has today. He wouldn't be the richest. Certainly, wouldn't be the richest man in the world uh, today, right? It was about 10 years of subsidies coming from the state of California uh, policies that that birthed Ch- Tesla into existence. Having said that, you have to, as somebody with aspirations to solve the world's most important problems you have to consider the automotive industry or the mobility sector. It's the world's most important solution to the problem of you know, not just climate change. You know, Mobility innovation is at the core of the advancement of civilization. Uh, if you go back several hundred years, he, the Industrial Revolution and the ability to kind of expand economies was a function of our ability to innovate on mobility. Cities are built at riverheads and at ocean ports because that's how you got stuff moved around before there were roads. You needed waterways. And before there were cars, there were horses on roads that were built out of dirt, right? And mobility innovation changed that. It was the automobile that replaced the horse. It was rail, the internal combustion engine era, rail, and the automobile changed the world in the 19th century Uh, In the 20th century we learned, we learned how to fly. These are all mobility innovations. The mobility innovation frontier for the future of the advancement of civilization is how do we solve the problem of serving a population of demand that, of which mobility is a core requirement for serving that that demand. How do we solve the world's most challenging problems with the world's most important solutions, right, and that's and the and the automotive industry provides those, or the automobility industry should be providing those solutions. Um, so that's why. And what I told the 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 State Department official is the U.S. has to stop thinking about the automotive, automotive industry. First of all, you know we, we have this expression in the U.S. called the Rust Belt, the Upper Midwest, the Rust Belt. Who wants to work for the Rust Belt? Who, who who graduates college and says gee whiz let me go work in the rust belt unless you're from Detroit or Cleveland or Pittsburgh who wants to work in the upper midwest you got to turn that around and make sell this as you're solving the world's most challenging problems for the for the country or in this case the world's most important industry right cuz solving a day-to-day need with more efficient solutions is what you ought to be doing with your life. Right, that's that's the way I would, I would come at it. And, and I applaud your son for wanting to be an urban planner because he's in the mobility solutions category. I'd want to be in that category if I'm a young person just
0: coming out of college. My next door neighbor in South Dakota is an auto dealer. And he always tells me the story about his grandfather taking a chance in the 60s with this very unknown Japanese brand. He started to sell their cars, and everyone thought he was a complete idiot. But he said that he had faith in the company, and he said he had to try new things. That brand was Toyota. Where do you think the next Chinese brand will be in, in North America? Do you see NEVs from China being sold in this country in sometime in the near future?
1: First of all, what did, Toyota, what did Hyundai do a few decades later? Uh, to make themselves presentable to a market that up till then was dominated by the big three, by the US OEMs. The answer is they created a car at a price point in a category that the foreign companies had a cost disadvantage, right? They were not able to produce as cheaply vehicles built in the United States as what Japanese uh, companies could do in the 60s uh, produced in Japan and put on a boat and shipped over to the U.S. because they weren't building cars in, in uh, right-to-work states in the 60s, right? Japan was a, a place to build you know, cheap, affordable cars. Hyundai became that place. Toyota pivoted from cheap to qual- high quality and re- kind of made themselves so that they can get a, a more premium price for what they deliver. And they still have that today. They still have that, that halo of bulletproof quality Uh, Today And that gives them some ability to price a profit and make a passenger vehicle. American OEMs kind of retreated and traded off quantity of sales for quality of sales. They retreated to places where they know they could make money. They they, they were squeezed on profit margin on the passenger car, so they went to SUVs, pickup truck, MPV, made money there. The problem with that strategy is the other guy can do that, too. I mean, Toyota's now making pickup trucks in Texas. They've they've localized everything in the U.S. now. They don't put them on boats hardly anymore to ship them around the world because that would be cost-expensive to do that. Um, Hyundai, you know, Honda, you know, name a company, they all kind of follow that path. And others will. The Vietnamese have already stated, and they will be selling, uh, you know, VinFast EVs in the United States. Uh, they'll they'll take the playbook from the ICE era, fast forward to today and, and do it for EVs. The question you raise though, you know, first of all, is there a demand side market for affordable EVs? Answer: ABSOLUTELY ALL CAPS BOLD ITALICS WITH EXCLAMATION POINTS. Absolutely. Well, are, do people want? Nobody wants to pay a penny more than they have to for something, unless they get some kind of brand equity way of bragging about it, right? Why in the world would I pay twice as much or three times as much for the same thing, right? And that's what we're faced with in China, and the reason why the Chinese are winning against the foreign companies where they weren't in the ICE era is that in the NEV era, the legacy don't matter anymore, right? The heritage doesn't matter anymore. The Chinese have reset the market expectation and Chinese brands are acceptable. As technology, affordable technology, even even Neo, you would think, okay, that's pretty high price, but when you compare the content of a Neo to a Tesla, you get more, right? That's why Chinese consumers are considering paying for a Li Auto a three hundred fifty, four hundred fifty thousand dollar amount of money. Why a Hi Fi is selling five hundred to six hundred units a month, priced at eight hundred thousand RMB. I mean, we're talking about over a hundred thousand dollars that some wealthy Chinese people are willing to pay for. Why? Because it's got the same content level as a very prestigious European brand would have. You're getting more for the money. So China has come into the EV era with affordability as its value proposition. Affordable, you know, even if it's expensive, it's certainly, compared to its facing competitors, a whole lot more content. So my answer to your question is that I believe... All of that statement, will consumers pay for affordable EVs? Yes. Will you then translate that into, will they pay for a Chinese electric vehicle? Is there a market for it? Absolutely. Will Americans or Canadians or people in North America be willing to pay for, uh, buy and own a Chinese branded vehicle? Probably But will there be a trade barrier preventing them from doing that? Probably, more than likely, right? I think the geopolitics of today are going to probably add a whole lot of complexity to whether or not they're going to be able to buy affordably a Chinese-branded vehicle. I I expect trade barriers to get in the way.
2: Ali, are we ready for the A-B test? Yes, we are. So for anyone that does not know about the A-B test, A stands for Ali, B stands for Bryce. We're going to throw uh, statements, words, questions at you, and whatever comes first to mind, just feel, feel free to answer. Number one, steps or miles? Steps. Earth or Mars?
1: Earth. Pushi or Pudong? Pushi, of course. <laughs> Do you think I work for General Motors? <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, it's, I think it's Jersey. Not Pudon.
2: <laughs> it, it is Jersey. The brand or product? The brand. Ferrari or McLaren? Ferrari. Tesla or Neo?
1: T- tough, tough question. I'll say Neo.
2: Xiaomi or Huawei? Xiaomi. Apple Car or Google Car? Apple Car. Bill Belichick or Tom Brady?
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm from New York, by the way. <laughs> Tom Brady. Is, he's the greatest of all time. Awesome.
2: Um, self-driving or autonomous driving?
0: Self-driving. And, uh, and the last one,
2: uh, Yankees or the Mets?
0: Yankees. Hey, Bill, uh, thanks for being on today's show. It was really, really fascinating, really interesting, very insightful. I know that I learned a lot of stuff. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks, Bryce. Thanks, Ali. appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in two weeks for another exciting show. And to all our listeners, until then, have a great day.